Many critics of the Bible poo-poo the entirety of its first five books, and plenty more besides. They see them as at best conjecture and at worst complete fiction. A kind of just-so story that makes sense of ancient human prehistory. And they could be right. After all, there is zero archaeology to support the belief that two million people travelled through the Sinai wilderness. If the biblical account is to be believed, these people travelled light. They carried the treasure gifted them by their Egyptian neighbours and no doubt guarded this jealously as it held so much value. But food and water came via divine provision. Manna arrived fresh in the morning and water poured from a rock in the arid desert. They really didn't need much else apart from the clothes on their backs, none of which would have survived the ravages of time to be discovered by modern-day metal detectors. Still, this is the only account we have, and though the Book of Numbers might have been written centuries after the events which it describes happened, it's possible that these stories were told orally, passed through the generations round desert fires and overshared meals. Not that there is much in the way of story in these pages of the Bible. The Israelites are still very much under instruction, and as the final rules and regs for life on earth are hammered home, Moses readies God's chosen people once again for the road. My name is Chaz Bayfield, and this is Holy Bible, episode 35, The Move. A quick note before we begin. If you're expecting a devotional podcast, this is not it. Think of it more as a secular walk through a sacred text. My belief is that the Bible is not just for religious people, it's for everyone. And to manage your expectations, I'm an advertising creative director, not a theology professor. So, five chapters into the book of Numbers isn't a place where many people spend a lot of time, but here we are, and there's actually quite a lot to see. Later on in the Old Testament, several Bible heroes, including Samuel and Samson, take an unusual and remarkably hardcore vow that is first described here in the book of Numbers. Nazarites are ultra-religious Jewish monks who follow three rules to say no to any alcohol, which includes wine, wine vinegar, or even any grape-based product, to neither shave nor cut their hair, and to avoid corpses, including buildings where dead bodies might be kept. Even if a close family member dies while a person is under a Nazarite vow, they must keep away. As long as their hair is shaggy and their beard is long, they are under contract to God to remain ceremonially clean. If someone dies suddenly in the Nazarite's presence, the Nazarite is still considered unclean and must wait seven days, then shave their head as a symbolic act of rededicating themselves. The next day, they must bring two doves or young pigeons as a sin offering and a burnt offering. The sense is that the Nazarite has been careless in allowing themselves to be exposed in this way, or that the accident is a sign that they have committed other sins. The exposure to death voids the vow, and so the Nazarite must rededicate themselves, or, as Numbers put it, consecrate their head again. They must bring a lamb to the tabernacle to take away any guilt of breaking the vow, and the clock starts again at zero from this moment. Once the Nazarite has completed the requisite number of weeks, months or years of their vow, they should be brought to the entrance of the tabernacle with a clutch of animals and foodstuffs to be offered to God. They need a one-year-old male lamb for their standard burnt offering, a year-old female lamb to cancel out their general sins, 
a ram for a fellowship offering to be enjoyed with their family, as well as a basket of thick and thin yeast-free loaves, and a drink offering of wine. The priest is to show all of these to God before killing the lambs and the ram and placing them on the altar fire with the loaves and wine. The Nazarite must shave off their hair, the outer symbol of their vow, which they must then throw in the fire while the meat from the ram is cooking. Once the Nazarite is clean-shaven, the priest then hands them a boiled shoulder of the ram and one each of the thick and thin loaves. The priest waves the food towards God's perceived dwelling place in the tabernacle, possibly by steering the Nazarite's hands with their own. This, along with the ram's breast and thigh meat, form the priest's share, and after the ceremony is complete, the Nazarite may drink wine again. The Nazarite is obliged to offer everything that they originally promised when making their vow, but may also add in extra gifts to God, depending on what they can afford. Nazarites in the Bible can either take temporary vows, or they can make a lifelong commitment. Some babies are brought up as Nazarites. Membership is open to women as well as men. The Apostle Paul takes a temporary Nazarite vow in Corinth, whereas the Old Testament judges Samson and Samuel are Nazarites for life, though Samson appears to ignore the rule about not drinking. John the Baptist and Jesus' brother James are New Testament Nazarites, and there are some who believe that Jesus himself might be a Nazarite. This confusion arises over the description of Jesus being a Nazarene. The word in Greek could mean Nazarite, or it could simply mean someone from Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. It seems unlikely that Jesus is a Nazarite, as he drinks wine, no mention is made of his hairiness, and he is more than comfortable in the presence of dead bodies, especially when bringing them back to life. It's believed that Nazarites inspired the Rastafarian movement, and some believe the seven locks of hair mentioned in Samson's story are dreadlocks. With everyone clear about the rules for Nazarites, God teaches Moses a prayer. The blessing which appears in the book of Numbers is one which Aaron and his sons are to use to address the Israelites, and one that is still in use in churches today. The full script is, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. The prayer demonstrates how deeply interested in every person the Bible believes God to be. The hope that God will bless them is a hope that he will show the people his favour in every aspect of their life. Keeping suggests both providing for, but also protecting from harm. Asking God to shine his face personalises him more than any passage in the Bible. This is probably meant metaphorically, though in the first five books of the Old Testament, God acts in a more human way than elsewhere. For example, in Genesis, he walks in the Garden of Eden in the cool of the day. Some see this as a theophany, God reflected in another being, such as an angel. Either way, the prayer asks for God to be delighted with his people and to show them special favour. The grace that the prayer asks God for equates to mercy, help and undeserved kindness, and God turning his face towards a believer means that he is paying attention to them and their needs. Peace is a much bigger concept than simply an absence of fighting. It also means inner peace, well-being and the sense of being in God's benign presence. The prayer is given to Moses to pass on to Aaron and his sons and is to be used to bless the Israelites. 
also known as the Aaronic Blessing, it is one of the oldest pieces of poetry in the Bible and is still in use not only by Christians but by Jews too. In 1979, the prayer was found inscribed on two silver scrolls in a burial cave in Jerusalem. The scrolls date from around 700 BC and constitute the oldest copy of any biblical text. After Moses has been taught the correct way to bless the Israelites by God, he turns his attention back to the tabernacle. It's been an extraordinary labour of love, but when the elaborate tent which has been fabricated to house the ark and the other holy furniture is finally complete, it's time for the grand opening. For this to happen, the altar needs to see its first sacrifices. Bible stat checkers will note that the dedication of the tabernacle is an event which has already been covered in the book of Exodus, but as with many elements in the Bible's second book, it is given another outing in its fourth. In this version, Moses sprinkles holy oil over all the furnishings, after which Israel's leaders show up with oxen and carts laden with high-status gifts. There is one ox for each of the twelve non-Levite tribes, and one covered cart for every two. God tells Moses that these gifts should be used to maintain the work of the tabernacle and should be distributed among the workers as and when anything is needed. The carts are useful for transporting the tabernacle curtains, leather coverings and poles, and so the Gershonites are given two carts and four oxen to haul them. Given that the Merorites have to carry the heavier wooden poles, crossbars and metal bases, they are given four carts and eight oxen. However, the Kohathites' cargo of gold and bronze tabernacle furnishings is seen as too holy to be loaded onto an ox cart, and so all these must be carried by hand. One by one, the elders hand over their treasures, which include silver plates and bowls filled with flour and olive oil, gold dishes filled with incense, and young bulls, rams, goats, lambs and oxen, all of which are to be sacrificed according to God's wishes. Each day, one tribal leader brings their gifts, beginning with Nashon of Judah on day one, and ending with a hearer of Naphtali on day twelve. Each leader offers the same, demonstrating that each tribe is equal and each is pulling its weight as far as giving. The twelve silver plates and twelve bowls filled with fine flour and olive oil together weigh 58 pounds and the twelve gold incense dishes weigh 3 pounds. For metric conversions see the show notes. Between them the tribes supply twelve young male oxen, twelve rams and twelve male lambs for their burnt offerings, plus twelve goats for a sin offering and an additional twenty-four oxen, sixty rams, sixty male lambs and sixty goats for the fellowship offering. These gifts are to provide the sacrifices that will dedicate the altar and at the end of the gift giving the book of Numbers describes how Moses enters the tent and hears God's voice speaking to him from between the two cherubim in the space above the Ark of the Covenant. Readers are told that from now on, this is how God speaks to Moses. Following instructions given to his brother by God, Aaron lights the tabernacle's ornate golden candlestick so that it illuminates the area directly in front of it. And for anyone who hasn't read the book of Exodus, there's a reminder that this fabulous candelabra has been fashioned out of solid gold to a pattern laid down by God himself. 8,200 men from the tribe of Levi have been earmarked to work in the tabernacle. 
All that remains now is for them to be officially commissioned. To begin their dedication ceremony, the Levites are sprinkled with holy water. They must shave from head to toe and must wash their clothes. After this physical purification comes a spiritual one, which of course involves animal sacrifice. Two bulls and some flour are needed for this. One of the animals is for a standard burnt offering, while the other is to remove the Levites' sins. The men are brought to the tabernacle and the entire population of Israel is to gather here. Statistically how this is stage managed the book doesn't explain, but it may be that only the elders and officials of each tribe, clan or family group is represented, or even just every adult man. The Israelites must then lay their hands on the Levites, who Aaron must then present at what the book describes as a wave offering. How he waves just over 8,000 men at God, readers aren't told, but he may walk them backwards and forwards past the tabernacle, or simply wave his hands in order to make them officially fit for purpose to carry out God's work. The Levites must then stand in front of Aaron, Eleazar and Ithamar, and place their hands on the heads of the bulls which are to be sacrificed in the belief that they will remove the men's sins. Doing this sets the Levites apart from the other tribes, and identifies them as God's possession, people whose sole responsibility is to do his work. Their commission as priests has officially begun. This means that Israelite families must still dedicate their firstborn baby boys and male animals to God, but do not have to hand over their firstborn sons to him, as the Levites have now taken on this role. God explains again that he set the Israelite firstborns aside for himself on the night that he destroyed Egypt's firstborn. He describes the Levites as a gift to Aaron and his sons to work exclusively in the tabernacle on behalf of the Israelites, whose sins they will help clear away. He also explains that with the Levites doing the work, Israel is safeguarded against plague. If the work of the tabernacle is left to the firstborn sons of every tribe, there is a chance that there will be the kind of foul-ups that might lead to God becoming so angry that he will unleash some kind of fatal pestilence on his people. Numbers records that all God's instructions are carried out to the letter, while Aaron and his sons look on. God reminds Moses that only men aged 25 to 50 are eligible to work in the tabernacle, possibly because the heavy lifting required each time the camp moves is too much effort for an older man. After their duties are no longer required, the old guard are still able to assist their fellow Levites in lighter duties, probably instructing and overseeing their younger co-workers. As if to underline the fact that the Bible has now completely given up on narrative at this point, Numbers jumps back in time to a month before the census that gives the book its name. This means readers are suddenly taken away from the dedication of the Levites to a point earlier in the story, where God orders Moses to celebrate the Passover at what he describes as the appointed time. This is to be twilight on the 14th day of the first month, which is in just a few days' time. It's been a whole year since the Israelites fled Egypt and God needs to remind them that it was he who rescued them and brought them out of what was a terrible and debilitating situation. Detailed instructions of what shape this festival is to take have already been recorded in the book of Exodus and the event appears to have been carried out without incident. However, not all Israelites can join in the party as some of them have been rendered temporarily unclean. A number of people who have been exposed to dead bodies approach Moses for advice on how they might join in, 
And, after consulting with God, the message is that they should simply celebrate a month later than everyone else. This little Passover should give people ample time to purify themselves from any defilement or to return from a distant journey. But just how it helps women on their period who might easily be menstruating again in a month's time is not explained. The rule to celebrate the festival applies to foreign converts living in Israel as well as people born to Israelite families. Anyone who fails to eat the lamb, flatbread and herbs in the correct manner, yet is ceremonially clean and not travelling, must be permanently excluded from their people. Their actions are considered deliberately evasive and God warns any Passover abstainers that they must face the consequences of not wanting to be a part of Israel. The book of Exodus has already explained that on the day the tabernacle was set up for the first time, the pillar of cloud rested on top of it. Readers are reminded of this and how at night the cloud turns into fire. The book of Numbers goes into a little more detail. The Israelites only move when God gives the go-ahead and they only stop and set up camp again when he tells them to, remaining there as long as he wants them. The pillar of cloud that tells them when to stop and start may only remain in place above the tabernacle overnight. Other times, it sticks around for over a year. The people are then told to fashion two trumpets from silver, which, when blown once, summon the elders to gather at the tabernacle. A double blast from the trumpet, however, is the signal for the two million people in the desert to gather in front of their nation's holy tent. Other trumpet blasts are given to alert the tribes that they are due to move. A single alarm tells the three tribes to the east of the tabernacle to move, two easily identifiable blasts for the tribes to the south, and so on. The role of blowing the trumpets is given to Aaron, Eleazar and Ithamar. The men are told to blast them before they go into the battles which lie in the way of their conquest of the promised land, and God assures them that doing this will guarantee them success. Trumpets are also for the good times, they're to be sounded during the sacrifices at the Israelites' festivals and new moon feasts. Readers are told that the noise will alert God, who will then bless the Israelites. The answer to why trumpets are used to get people's attention is a simple one. Nothing man-made at the time that the book of Numbers is written makes such a loud noise. Finally, 14 months after they first arrived in Sinai, it's time for the Israelites to break camp and begin the relatively straightforward journey to Canaan. When the cloud lifts from the tabernacle, the Israelites gather up their belongings, leave their desert encampment and move off in their preordained formations. The book of Numbers describes how they travel from place to place, suggesting that these aren't really points on the map, this is all desert country, and that the only significance for these locations is that the Israelites set up camp here. This happens until the mass movement of people arrives at the desert of Paran, an area of wilderness north of the Sinai Peninsula. First to break camp are the three tribes led by Judah, followed by the Gershonites and Merorites who dismantle the tabernacle and fall in behind with their cargo. Next come the tribes led by Reuben, followed by the Kohathites carrying the sacred tabernacle furnishings. These are followed by the tribes led by Ephraim, with Dan's three tribes bringing up the rear. The thinking behind sending the Kohathites later than the Levites who are carrying the tabernacle's canvas and poles is that it allows time for the tent to be set up before they arrive. 
Moses may have God's pillar of cloud and fire to lead him, but he can't beat a local guide who knows the terrain. For this reason, he attempts to enlist his brother-in-law Hobab to be his eyes on the ground as they traverse unfamiliar terrain. Like his father Jethro, Hobab is a pagan Midianite and initially refuses the invitation to join the ragtag bunch of nomads on their great adventure. Moses chooses to flatter his brother-in-law, telling him that he of all people will know where to camp in the wilderness, though the need for this expertise is questionable given the expectation that God will dictate where and when the camp should stop. However, Moses persists and promises Hobab a share in Israel's riches once they reach the promised land. The book doesn't relate whether Hobab accepts the invitation or not, but Moses' attempt to persuade his relative to join what is effectively the army of God is possibly the first example of evangelism in the Bible. The action is back, and there is more to follow. Ahead of the Israelites lies a land of promise, but one filled with potential danger. Rather than rush headlong into the conquest, Moses sends scouts on a reconnaissance mission behind enemy lines. The spies return with stories of terrifying giants, the sons of the Nephilim, primordial bogeymen from before the flood, who will destroy any enemy army. Will the Israelites fight their fear and push on, or will terror paralyze the camp? The spies' mission into Canaan is next. Bible is written and produced by me, Chas Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Please send any comments or feedback to contact at holybible.com. Oh, and if you have a spare minute, please give us a review on whatever channel you use to listen to this podcast. Your reviews really do help spread the word. Thank you.